Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. The means of grace. There's a word in that uh, that is means. And means is a tricky word in Christianity. For some of you, it's not a tricky word. You've never thought about it before. However, uh, as we go through this, you'll begin to understand what I mean by tricky. So I'm going to be tackling a topic that is very necessary in the body of Christ for us to get a grip on, but it can lead to cans of worms being opened along the way. Uh, And so what I'm going to attempt to do by the grace of God is to give a message that doesn't distract. At the same time, I have to plow through territory that there's some sensitivity spots in it. Uh, For instance, one of the territories is divine healing, and I just have to cross over. This message isn't about divine healing. However, when you're dealing with means, for instance, a means is something that is used to accomplish an ends, uh, or an end. And so, for instance, medicine. If you're a Christian, should you use medicine? Should you go to the doctor? Oh, no, do we really need to deal with that? Well, my message is non-healing, but I have to go through that territory. And so my goal today is not to address that issue. For instance, if you're going to come up to me afterwards and say, so are you saying I shouldn't go to the doctor? Are you saying I should go to the doctor? I'm going to say, I didn't say either. However, hopefully you're going to have some reasoning tools to be able to more effectively address these issues in your life biblically. Because when we end up in the land of superstition, we oftentimes will do things because we're afraid to do the wrong thing. And we will either not go to a doctor or go to a doctor for fear one or the other. If we go to the doctor, then it's the fear that if we didn't, we would die. If we don't go to the doctor, it's oftentimes the fear that if we did, we would be in disobedience to God. And so either one, it could be a form of superstition or ignorance. And we're not functioning in what the Bible refers to as faith. In everything we do, we must function in faith. The key thing that matters in the Christian life is faith expressing itself in the nature of God, or as Scripture would say, faith expressing itself in love, in all that we do. And so one of the things I want to give you is a tool of reasoning so that you can begin to navigate through these areas of life, these landmine issues, and not stumble your faith, not trip and end up with this sort of sense of condemnation looming over you because you felt like you violated something you weren't supposed to. I want you to walk in liberty and freedom, but I want you to walk in faith. And so let's embark upon this rather dangerous message. The means of grace. Uh, Sandy was, I was talking with her about my message earlier this week, and she said, well, that sounds like what the Puritans called the means of grace. And so I go, oh, that's a great name for my, uh, my message, since I'm always, this is a hard one to name. And so we have the Puritan's way of saying it, the means of grace, because the way a Puritan would look at it is that in every situation, God has a means. God has a solution for every situation. They would typically refer to it as providence. God is providential, which means he has supplied ahead of time that which you need. He knew you were going to be in this situation. 
So then you look heavenward and you say, oh God, what's up your sleeve? What is your means of grace in this situation? Grace is a tricky word in Christianity as well. A lot of times we think of grace as being the hug of God's acceptance. In other words, we're a mess and God's perfect and so God gives us grace and he just sort of hugs us in our mess. Well, that's actually not what grace is. I'm not saying that it doesn't involve a hug. God is a very huggy sort if you want to look at it that way. However, It is enabling power to accomplish what only God can accomplish. It is God laboring on man's behalf. We are saved by that labor, by the way. God saves us by his working. He worked 2,000 years ago, but guess what? He's still working today on your behalf, and that work is called grace. And so the means of God's rescue. How is God going to rescue in this situation? Whether you're sick, whether you have no money in the bank, I don't care what it is. You're surrounded by a whole bunch of bullies who backed you into the corner. What is the means of grace in this situation? How is God going to get you from where you're at now to where he needs you to be? That's a means, okay? So let's begin. Means, an action or system by which a result is brought about. A method. Does God use means? It's a very interesting question. Does God use certain things in his creation? Or, for instance, we oftentimes get stuck in the issue of uh, health when we start talking about means. Does he use medicine, for instance, to heal us? But how about in finances? If God wants you to be established to carry out his work, does he use means? For instance, could he give you a job to earn money? Well, that sounds unspiritual. Why doesn't he just give you the money? I mean, if he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, why doesn't he just deposit some money in your bank account? So does he use means to carry out his ends? A very interesting question. The life vest. Hudson Taylor, I've actually known this story for a long time and I've wrestled with it for years and years because Hudson Taylor is one of my heroes. I named my firstborn son Hudson. So it's a high compliment that I pay to this man. In fact, when I talk about Ellerslie, I say it's my desire, my vision for Ellerslie is the return of Hudson Taylors and Amy Carmichaels to the Church of Jesus Christ. So I'm paying this man a very high compliment. However, he's not God. And what he says needs to be evaluated. And as a student of Scripture, even when Hudson Taylor speaks, I go to Scripture and I say, is that correct, though? I want to test this against the Word of God. So I'm going to give you a quote from Hudson Taylor that has actually been a wrestling match quote for me for years of my life. Hudson Taylor says, the use of means... Ought, ought, not, ought not to lessen our faith in God. And our faith in God ought not to hinder whatever means he has given for us for the accomplishment of his own purposes. He had studied medicine, so he was a medical practitioner. When in medical or surgical char- charge of any case, I have never thought of neglecting to ask God's guidance and a blessing in the use of appropriate means. If he has a scalpel, he'll use it. He doesn't just pray, but he'll actually use the scalpel. Can he do that? Should he do that? This is one of the greatest men of faith that has ever lived. This man in his life and the stories, if you read his life story, will shake you to the core and will show you the little smallest version of faith that you live by. And yet this very man is saying that in a surgical situation, if he sees someone with a health disorder, he has the means. He has knowledge about the human body and he has the means sitting there Should he just pray for the man or should he use the medical means? It's a very interesting question. And he says that he doesn't hesitate to use the medical means. But doesn't that sound like a compromise? 
When God Almighty's the healer, what is he touching the scalpel for? Couldn't God just heal him? Why is he touching those tools? It's a very interesting question. To me, it would appear presumptuous and wrong to neglect the use of those measures which he himself has put within our reach. And as to, neglect to, to, as to neglect to take daily food and suppose that life and health might be maintained by prayer alone. If you eat today, are you using means to maintain your health? <clears throat> you are. If you wear glasses, contacts, are you using means to see better? You are. Is that a lack of faith? Well, that's a fascinating question. Which is why some of you were like, I was fine until you started bringing up the questions, Eric. It wasn't an issue for me. For a lot of people, it is. They don't feel comfortable wearing their glasses because that would be a step away from trusting God to heal their eyes. And so what do we do? How do we handle these issues? Because especially for those of us that long to live by faith and faith alone, how does this work? If we know God can supply our need and he can provide for us, is it right for us to get a job and earn money for that same resource? Ah, so the, I called this little subsection the life vest. And the, what Hudson Taylor has commented on is something from when he was a young Christian, probably the maturity level of many of the students here at Ellerslie, and he went on the mission field to China. And on his journey to China, before he went, his mother knew that he was going to be on a boat to cross the uh, ocean, and so she begged him to take a life vest with him. And he was like, Mom, I do not need a life vest, okay? I have God. I do not need a life vest. And so she begged him, begged him, begged him. And so for her sake and for her conscience, he said, all right, Mom, I will take the life vest. Do you feel better now? Yes. Okay, as long as you have that life vest. And so he is looking at his mom going, oh, ye of little faith, don't you realize that if there's a storm and I get thrown into the water, I have God Almighty to buoy me up? Is that true? Yes. And this young man of faith, in the vigor of his innocence of faith, knows he doesn't need a life vest, but that God supplies for him in every situation. And so he has his mother's life vest along with him. And guess what? There is a storm. And the storm is raging. And guess what is needed in that situation? A life vest. If there was one thing that you would want to have on that ship, because a whole bunch of the men didn't have it, this is in the days where it wasn't required that you have a life vest on board for every single member on the ship, but guess who had one? Hudson Taylor. However, his faith, as he would describe it later in life, was young and immature. And so what did he do in his young and immature faith? He said, this life vest is blocking my ability to trust in God. I'm putting my confidence in it instead, and so he gave it away. Now, when I look at that, I say, what a noble thing to do. He knows that God will sustain him. He knows that God will be his life vest, so he has the freedom of conscience to give it to someone else. Instead, later in life, he said that was an immature decision. He said, according to my faith at the time, my conscience dictated that's what I had to do, but I had a weak conscience. And I didn't recognize that the provision of the moment was there for me. God had given me what I needed, but I wanted something bigger for God to do. And so I missed the small provision that God had supplied. Oh, do you see why I wrestle with this? That's an interesting tension of soul. You see, what the young Hudson Taylor did, I look at and I say, what a noble thing to do. 
he was actually giving up his life for others. Actually, what he was doing is he was saying, this is blocking my faith. And so I need to give it away because my trust is purely in God, not in a life vest. However, what he, the older Hudson Taylor says is, God provided you, young Hudson, that life vest just for such a moment. You thank God for the fact that you have it and that he has given it to you. Those are the challenges we are facing today. The perplexing questions. Yes, I realize it is Hudson Taylor talking, but this must be checked against the scriptures. Does God want us to use means? Would he actually have us use a life vest instead of having him supernaturally buoy us in the water? Is it a diminishment of faith to use means? If God did desire us to use means, are there means that are wrong to use and ones that are right? Ooh, what a juicy message. (laughs) A basic study in means. God ahead of time knows the circumstances you're going to face. He understands your life. He understands the direction, the trajectory of your life. He knows what lies ahead. And so as a good father, he makes provision for you ahead of time. And so here's this description of it. Long before the stars flew like sparks from the anvil of omnipotence. I love that statement, the anvil of omnipotence. God had contrived the way for the redemption of his own. In the covenant council chamber, the divine persons of the sacred unity arranged the procedure for all glorious grace. God conspired. He got together the Trinity. And what did they do? They came up with the means for your salvation. They knew. Before it all began, they understood how they would do it. And so the provision was there when you need it. Guess what? You need salvation. And guess what? It's there. You know that something has already been supplied for you? The very moment that you need it, God has already made a way beforehand. He knew you were going to be here. He knew you were going to be in this crisis. He knew you were going to be in this state. And so, if you have the eyes of faith, you will see the way that he has made, the means that he has given for you in this situation. Does God use means? It's a very fascinating question. I wish we could have just taken a poll ahead of time. Of course, I would have had to explain what means are and things like that before. But I would be fascinated to know your thought on if God uses means. I mean, he's God. Does God really need to use some prop? Would he actually use a life vest? I mean, come on, that is so pedestrian. He's God Almighty. So the question is, does God use means? Huh. Did he use means in order to save us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Did you know that he used Jesus Christ to save you? I know that sounds strange. You're like, well, that doesn't count. That's, that's God. I mean, Jesus is God, so that's like him using himself to save. So that, we already know that. That's a given. So you're saying, okay, that doesn't count. So the question still is on the table. Does God use means outside himself is the key question then. Would he use anything outside of himself? Like, for instance, would he use glasses to help someone see? I mean, come on. God Almighty, why would he give provision of glasses when he could just go, boop, and give you perfect eyesight? It's an interesting question. So would he use means to heal physically? After all, we know he heals, but would he ever use chemotherapy in order to do it? 
Ooh, that's a hard one. I'm not going to go into that, by the way. That's a, that's a dangerous one to touch. How about to provide financially? Would he use, we know he provides, but would he ever use me going to work in a nine to five job in order to do it? Because some of you, if you've ever heard someone saying, God provided me with a job, some of you have sneered at that and said, God doesn't need a job to provide for you. You actually think you need to go work at a job? God is God. He could provide for you. Actually, there's a lot in scripture that could address each one of these things, but we're going to think bigger. We are looking through a bigger lens, which will help us solve some of these smaller issues. To keep us until that day, imagine that you come to the conclusion that, yes, I have a purpose on this earth, and the enemy cannot just snuff out my life anytime he wants. So how does God keep you until that day? We know God will keep us until that day, but would he ever use herbal remedies? How about a bulletproof vest? I'm not about to wear a bulletproof vest. I have God. Or a surgery to transplant a new heart inside my chest in order to do it. Would God ever do that? I mean, if, you're gonna, if you have a bad heart, why would he ever use a transplant? I had a, someone had a dream of me getting shot, uh, and I had all these people that didn't like me, which, uh, I, and I'll just keep moving. <laughs> and so in the dream, I got shot, and I fell down, but then I got back up, and I had had a bulletproof vest on, or something like that, and so that's why it popped into my head. Would God actually do that? Well, I don't need a bulletproof vest. I have God. How does God awaken a soul? This is an interesting question. I want you to think about if God uses means. How does God awaken a soul? How did God awaken you? And you could say, well, by his Holy Spirit. That's true. But did he use means in order to do it? I know he used his spirit. No man can even see God without the spirit of God. However, did he use means in order to do it? Only he can do the awakening, but strangely, uh, he uses means in order to do it. Listen to this. For while one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believed? Whoa, did you just hear that? Ministers by whom you believed. You see, Paul and Apollos were used by the Spirit of God to help you see and believe. So it says, but ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered. So Paul says, I planted. Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. We know God is the one that awakens a soul, but he uses means in order to do it. So then neither is he that plants anything, neither he that waters, but God that gives the increase. Are the means what we focus on? No. Are the means where we put our confidence? Do we put our confidence in Paul or Apollos? No. But do Paul and, Paul and Apollos figure into the equation? Yes. So they're not the focal point. God is. But are they there? Yes. So God uses means in stirring us unto salvation. What an interesting concept. God uses means, and um, uh, we are those means. Isn't that a strange thing to think of being means in the hand of God? When someone says, does God use means? He says, he uses me. God uses us? He doesn't need to. Have you ever thought that through? Does God need to condescend to use me to change this world, to reveal his glory? No, but he does. So here's one thing I need you to plant inside your understanding. God uses humble things to declare his big things. He has chosen to do that. So stop arguing 
And start, stop saying, oh, God would never do that. That's why the Jews miss Jesus. God would not be born as a baby in a stable. God would not do that. He's God. God would not dwell in the temple of man. He's holy, holy, holy. They're right, he's holy, holy, holy. But what shocks them is that God would use means. That God would use humble things to declare his glory. We are his chosen means by which he accomplishes his work in this world. Who speaks the truth in this world? We're called to. Does God speak truth? Yes, he is truth. His word is truth. But how did he even write his word? His word is written through the hand of men. He uses means to bring forth his truth. How about to teach the Bible? We know that the Holy Spirit is the teacher, but guess what? Who does he use? He uses us to take what he teaches us to teach others, to preach the gospel, to live out and showcase the power of redemptive grace, to pray until the breaking of day. Who does the praying? We do. He's the spirit of prayer, but then he fills us and we do the praying. He's using something to carry out his divine errand. He uses means. And to be his hands and feet unto the orphans, the widows, the poor, the lost, and the dying. These hands are his means. They're his hands. If he's a father of the fatherless, what's he using? He's using my fatherhood. He's actually using my home to bring in the fatherless. He's using means, humble means. Does, can God do it better than I can? Absolutely. But he still chooses to use humble things to declare his glory. We are his body, er, you know, this is supposed to mean it's awkward to know how to say this. Er, his means of grace. Er is like an old-fashioned filler word, like um, you know. <laughs> we are his body, er, his means of grace. Introducing a big word. You guys ready for this? Big word. Uh-oh, there it is. Sovereignty. It's a good word. Good historic Christian word. You'll notice in it that it has the word reign. It's a word of supremacy. It's a word that means overall. So sovereignty is the fact that God is over all, in charge of all, in control of all, and all things will ultimately turn for his glory and for the good of those who love him. Sovereignty. Big word. Big concept. The idea of sovereignty is cherished by the historic church. Uh-oh, subtitled to this one. But the devil has an agenda with it too. You see, God is big. God is massive. God is overall. Is there anything that is not under the feet of Jesus Christ? No, it says all things are under his feet. He has dominion over all things. And so if you just stop there, you could easily begin to reason from the fact that, well, God is huge. He can do whatever he wants. And therefore, he's not going to use small things to accomplish it. He's too big for that. And when the devil gets his hands on sovereignty, he distorts the entire construct of how life works and how he interacts with it. And as a result, you can be skewed in your understanding. You can believe in sovereignty. You can use the word all the time, but actually not be talking about how God is working. You've misrepresented God and built a golden calf understanding of him. So the distortion of sovereignty. Here's the devil's goal to argue that if God is so big, he wouldn't use means to accomplish his errands. Why does he need us to evangelize the lost? He's huge. If he's going to save them anyways, why would he use us? 
He doesn't need us to be praying. He's going to accomplish his ends anyways. Guess what? Does that sound like something that's gone through your head? That's the devil's business. The devil wants to inoculate you to the fact that you have a role and you are the chosen means through which God is intending to change this earth. But it's not you. It's not Paul or Apollos. It's God who gives the increase. But he's needing planters and he's needing waterers. So when the devil gets a hold of these concepts, he says, you don't need Paul, you don't need Apollos. I had someone tell me that when we were starting Ellerslie. God doesn't need discipleship. He is the discipler. Well, then you could follow that through and say, he doesn't need churches. He's the head of the church. Let him be just sort of the pastor. Well, he is. But he uses humble means to organize the church, to speak to the church, to preach to the church, to preach the gospel. He has chosen this. Stop arguing with it and stop following the devil's bait. God has condescended. I realize he's huge, but he has condescended to use small things to reveal his big things. That's his way. So how about the soul? When the devil gets a hold of the issue of sovereignty, how does it affect the soul? Well, God would never make an appeal to the soul. You have nothing to do with salvation. If God chooses to save you, boom, you're just saved. You don't have any personal responsibility to respond, to repent, and to believe. That's God's business. What we end up doing is diminishing the fact that God uses humble means, that he appeals unto a soul and says, repent. Now, how in the world did you even hear God? Who's the one giving the increase? God. However, you still are a part of this process. You're not just a passive person sitting there being changed. You are an active, engaged participant in a process. He would just change it, says the distorted sovereignty. He would never expect man to do anything, for it's his job to do everything. There is no such thing as personal responsibility, only God transforming. God must do everything. So our conclusion, if God wants me to change, then he will change me. How healthy of a lifestyle is that? The result, spiritual passivity. Hey, well, if God wanted to change this, you know, I'm a lust-filled creature, but if God wanted to do something about it, then he just would, and I would not lust anymore. Is that how things work? That's not how Christianity functions. That's like taking the engine out of the car and saying, yeah, you know, this is still a car. No, it's not. It doesn't function anymore. It doesn't run the way it's supposed to. How about in your health? God isn't impacted by how we treat our bodies. He's bigger than that. If he wants me to live until I'm 90, then I will live until I'm 90, eating hostess cupcakes three meals a day. <laughs> so the conclusion of this is my daily decisions in regard to my health and appetite don't really matter. The result is indulgence and fleshly appetite will rule. In other words, you become passive in every dimension of your life because God is big enough. I don't actually have any say in this matter. God doesn't condescend to care about things like what I eat. He's bigger than that. How about your money? God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, so I don't need to work hard to earn money. I don't need to think about these things. He's the one who will deal with my money. It doesn't matter how I spend. It doesn't matter how I give. It doesn't matter how I save. If God wants me to have money, I will. The conclusion, a lack of restraint and lack of proper discipline in handling the gifts of God. The result, waste of resources and bearing of the talents of gold. In other words, God has entrusted you with something. It's resource. How do you handle that resource? Well, a distorted understanding of sovereignty actually removes the fact that he uses means. 
He actually has real means that he intends to wield in your life, but there needs to be a responsibility within us to rise up and say, God does condescend to use these things. And I can give God glory in everything I do. How I handle my dimes and nickels and quarters and how I handle my eating. Whether I'm eating or drinking, I do it all for the glory of God. All of these small things actually play into the Christian life. How about missions? What if you have a distorted understanding of sovereignty? God will save those he intends to save whether I do anything or not. So why pray? Why go and tell people about Jesus? He's sovereign. I'll let him do the work. The conclusion, what will be, will be. Que sera, sera. What will be, will be. Nothing is actually changed by my obedience. The result, we'll call it very simply, the fool. That is the foolish mentality that leads to absolute despair. Oh, my, my fields will be sown by God. They will be harvested by God. And as a result, you don't eat. Why? Because you didn't work. You see, there's a simple principle of how faith works. Faith is combined with an active engagement known as ergon in the Greek, work. We are not saved by our working. We are saved by his working, which is grace. However, the evidence of God truly working in us is that it is worked out in and through our natural, practical lives. The idea of sovereignty gone sour, it's known as passivity. If God's in control of everything and God is going to do what he's going to do anyways, what do you do? You just sit back and let him do it. You drink your pina colada and just say, well, God, you do it. That's actually not how life works. That is a distortion of God being in control of all things. So here's the statement of sovereignty gone south and sour. God is sovereign, so therefore I don't need to do anything. Well... There's a part truth in that. You can't save yourself. You can't save another human. But you still have a role, and he chooses to use you as means in the process. The fact of sovereignty understood correctly. Well, that's just known as Christianity. So when sovereignty is correct, we understand that all things are under Christ's feet, that he is in the preeminent position. How does that affect us in our thinking and our living? Well, here's a simple statement for it. God is sovereign. So therefore, I give thanks knowing he has a means for my salvation in every circumstance. And whatever the enemy means for evil, he will always turn to good. So someone who understands the position of Jesus Christ, the preeminent position, the sovereign position of Jesus Christ, in every circumstance, say your bank account runs out of money. <gasps> oh no. What does the man who knows God's position say? Yes. All right. God what is your provision in this circumstance? I know you are in control of my life and you have led me here. Therefore, I trust you. And I know that you knew about this circumstance even before I got here. My mortgage payment is due tomorrow. <laughs> How are you going to do it this time? It's marked by faith. Faith in his position, but not a distortion. You see, in that circumstance... God's provision might be someone calling you up and saying, hey, Ludy, I got a job over here. I'll, yeah, I'll give you a, a thousand bucks for it uh, if you can do it by today. Yes, sir. And what does that thousand bucks translate into? My mortgage payment. Do you see it? Do you see how God supplies? And yet, what is he using? He's not just dumping a thousand dollars in your bank account. 
What's he doing? He's given you means, but do you see it? Or do you decline the job and do you say, no, God will supply? So how do we function in life as Christians? The biblical idea of sovereignty. The biblical idea of sovereignty has the idea of God condescending to use humble means to carry out his big plan. You see, this is woven into sovereignty. Why? Well, have you ever noticed how God came to this earth? He came humbly. God Almighty, may I remind you, who created the heavens and the earth, was born in the womb of a little girl. Uh, who is from Nazareth? Who's like, I mean, that's like the pitiful spot in Israel. Who is not married at the time she's, that the life of God is conceived in her. It makes the life look illegitimate. Ah, uh, he grows up a humble carpenter. He calls, who are the disciples that he calls? Tax collectors and fishermen? This doesn't look good. Humble means to declare his high position. Jesus' life declared the glory of God, yet everything about Jesus' life was humble. You see, God is giving us a picture. That is how he works. He uses humble things to declare his big nature. He has chosen to do that. That's his sovereignty. He's overall. He's decided how he will do it, and that's how he's decided to do it. Why do we argue this? It's his business. He has decided to take humble means to reveal his glory. You know that he didn't have to be born in human skin? In our mind, of course. By the way, if you ever hear my message, Law and Grace, and you understand how the legalities of the cross work, you'd recognize that it had to be an Adam that saved us. So therefore, it had to be someone who identified with us in our condition. And so there is more stuff to this. However, did, could God have done it in different ways? Could he have come in a grand fashion? Yeah, if that was his nature. But God's very nature is humble. Isn't that an amazing thought to think that our pride is, actually has nothing to do with God? That's the devil that has pride. But God is humble. Though, though he is above all, though he has created all, he's humble and he's a servant in his nature? What? God Almighty? That's right. God Almighty. Get introduced to the King of Kings and you'll begin to realize that when you use a big word like sovereignty, it is not detached from his nature. His nature is woven into the fabric of that word. Yes, he is over all, but he's still humble. And he chooses humble means to reveal his glory. How does God work his miracles? So let's just think this through. God Almighty, if he's going to come and declare his glory in and through miracles, what kind of miracles is he going to do? Just think about what kind of miracles you would do. I was talking to someone, I don't remember who it was, maybe it was the practicum students this past week, and I said, when I see Moses coming in before Pharaoh, and he has a rod, I'm thinking, come on, God, you're just going to turn it into a serpent? I mean, by the way, that's impressive, I couldn't do it, right? To throw down a rod and it turns into a snake and then gobbles up the other snakes? That's impressive, don't get me wrong, but come on. We could do this better. And so I was given the illustration, maybe you throw down the rod and it turns into Tyrannosaurus Rex <laughs> and gobbles up everyone in the room. 
You see, and I can come up with even better than that, okay? I mean, I can come up with a new monster that's never existed. And he's like, and Pharaoh goes, take the people. (laughs) You see, in my mind, I could do this better. And in my mind, I wouldn't use means. I would invent something. I would create something out of vapor. That's what I would do. I would shock them. Instead, what does God do? He takes means. He even uses Moses' rod. Why does he need that? He doesn't need a rod, but he takes a rod. Why does he use these small pedestrian things to do what he does? Come on, God, you're God. Start acting like God. He says, I am. He is acting like God. This is how God works. It's not how we work. You see, we're the ones that are wrong, not him. How does God work his miracles? How does he make a helper for Adam? Okay, imagine that you're looking at Adam and saying, it's not right for him to be alone. So what do you do? (laughs) Ah, there she is. (laughs) What does God do? Uh, Adam, let's go to sleep. Hmm, my creation is good. It's very good. So let me use that which is in my creation. Let me use means. He digs into Adam's side and grabs a rib. Why is he going to use that? I could come up with so many other ways that we could have just created a woman. However, he created Adam's helpmeet out of what he'd already created. He used means, a rib in this case, to reveal himself to Moses. You know how many different ways God could have revealed himself to Moses? Instead, what does he do? He hangs out in a bush. A bush? God, I mean, there's like an oak tree down over here. A bush? That's what he chose. He chose a bush as his dwelling place to reveal his glory, to part the Red Sea. Now, how would you part the Red Sea? I mean, to part the Red Sea, don't get me wrong, it's a pretty big thing. But how did God part the Red Sea? I shared this last week. He brought an east wind. Now, most of you, when you think of him parting the Red Sea, he just goes, kaboom, and he parts it. No, Actually, a wind blew all night, and I don't know how a wind parts the sea. That is one strong wind. But God used something in his creation to come in and accomplish the miracle. Do you see a pattern here? God is using means in every single one of these circumstances to reveal his glory, yet wind is pedestrian. It is not grand. God could just kaboom, do it. Instead, he uses means. How about to knock out a giant? All David should have had to do is go, you defy the armies of the living God. And then what does Goliath do? His head should just go, poof. (laughs) Why does David need to do anything? God is here. Instead, God anoints a young boy to use means, a, a smooth stone, to use the training that he received with a sling and to then help that rock to find its place. Why does he do that? Why does he need to use such smallish things to accomplish his big ends? To feed 5,000. If you're going to feed 5,000 people, how are you going to do it? You're just going to invent food out of nowhere. I know how you work. Same way I would. In fact, I'm going to set up a banquet table. I'm going to have the whole thing. Instead, God uses the lunch of a little boy. Why does he do that? He uses the lunch of a little boy and then multiplies that. See, he still creates food. He's still doing a miracle. Don't get me wrong. 
But just as he uses Paul and just as he uses Apollos, he's going to use a lunch. Anyone have a lunch? I need a lunch. I need means, he says. Does he? Does he really need means? That's what matches his character. You see, his nature is such that he's telling us something. He's saying, this is how I work. How about the man sick with the palsy? You know, the, one of the most incredible stories in the Bible is that this man sick with the palsy is healed by Jesus. However, how did that man sick with the palsy get to Jesus? There were four men that went and picked him up, that carried him up to Capernaum, couldn't get through because there were so many people, climbed up onto a roof, banged through the roof, broke through it, and lowered him down. He got there by means. It was men and women just like us in this room that helped that man get to the feet of Jesus, and then Jesus heals him. The blind man. Well, a little spit and a little dirt. Mix those two things together and go, stick it on the eye. That'll work. And what do we say? Uh, God, why do you need that? You don't need spittle and dirt. You're going to cause everyone to think that you need stuff like that. Does he really need spittle and dirt, or is he teaching us something? Is he showing us something in how he works? So God uses means. Uh, you catching that drift? I'm making a point, but I'm not trying to say that God isn't powerful, that God can't do things. He parts Red Seas. However, how he parts the Red Sea is what I want you to focus on today. I don't want to diminish the fact that he parts Red Seas and feeds 5,000. It raises dead men to life. He does. But I also don't want you to trip and have a weak conscience and a low understanding of how God works. God uses means. He uses a rib, a bush, winds, a smooth stone, fishes and loaves, four men, spittle and dirt. You know what? Those are very, very small things. And yet in and through those things, the list I just gave you are some of the greatest events in all of history. And yet how did he use those means? He used small things to reveal his bigness. And none of us look at the, that bigness and say, come on. If he was really God, he wouldn't have used that wind. No, the fact that the wind is completely under his command is what we begin to notice. It's like, wow, he controls the winds and the waves. Who is this? Well, he's the creator of them. Wow, he can fashion a woman out of a rib? Who, who can do that? Well, he's the creator. You see, he's God Almighty. But that God uses humble means. That's the other thing we should notice. The revelation of his glory. How did his glory get revealed? How do you even know about his glory? Well, there's multiple factors to that. So let me go through them. The word of God in text. Did you know that with scripture, we have a clear account of who he is? His glory, his nature, his ways, how he works. We can see it. But how did scripture come to us? It was men carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men. God used means. God sticks that word in ink on scrolls, on paper. God uses means to carry forth his word unto us. That's amazing. The word of God in person. God could have just come any way he wanted, couldn't he? Of course, he's the one that said he will be born of a virgin. However, he could have just come up with a different mode and said, oh, scratch that, not born of a virgin, I'm just going to come down because I'm God. I don't need a little girl's womb. I mean, come on. I don't need the seed of a woman. I'm God Almighty. And God Almighty chose this way. 
He chose the womb of a little girl. He chose the seed of a woman through which to bear a humanity, to identify with us, to accomplish for us. You see, he humbled himself and was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wow. How about the word of God in and through the church? You see, it's the church that's supposed to reveal the manifold wisdom of God. He chose us to reveal his manifold wisdom. We're pathetic. Sorry to break that to you. We're not impressive and we're not good vehicles for this. God could do this so much more effectively. He says, no, no, I've chosen foolish things. God, did you just call me foolish? Yeah, yeah, did you catch that? You see, we are weak things. We are foolish things. Yet he's chosen us to do his work. So it's our humble bodies, our humble lips, and our humble lives that he chooses. Could he do it without means? Of course. He's God. However, it fits his nature to do what he's doing. But in his manifold wisdom, he has seen fit to showcase his glory through weak and foolish things. Our God has chosen to do this. Why must we argue? He knows what he's doing. 1 Corinthians 1, for you see your calling, brethren, now that not many wise men after the flesh, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath, not, hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. He even uses what the enemy means for evil. Now think about how brilliant this is. And this has to do with how God is sovereign. God will use means, humble means. And no matter what the means is, like, yeah, I can use that. Yeah, I'll use that. They're like, how about me? Yeah, I'll use you. I mean, this foolish thing? Yeah, yeah, I love to use foolish and weak things. He will use humble and weak things. Now get this. Even the disobedience, even the evil things that are being perpetrated in this world, God will use those, get this, as his means to declare his glory. How would he do that? He will take everything the devil does, everything that evil men do, and he will turn it, and he will leverage it to the fullest extent. It's like compost. He somehow takes all that filth and all that junk and all that trash and turns it into fertilizer for his agenda. He's God. He's sovereign is the point. He's over all. He will not be mocked, but he will accomplish his ends. So he leverages the stubbornness of men, their rebellion, their evil motives, their evil actions, their bloodlust and jealousies for his ends. Remember Joseph. You see, this was an enemy maneuver to destroy this young boy, and yet God the whole while holds it in the hollow of his hand. And he uses Joseph's humble circumstances as his stage to reveal his glory, his love, his mercy, and his provision unto the nation of Israel. He did it. So even what Joseph says, but as for you, speaking to his brothers, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. How about this? Remember the cross. Who entered Judas to betray Jesus? It says Satan entered Judas. You know that Judas' betrayal actually fulfilled Jesus' messiahship? Do you know that Jesus needed to be betrayed 
and it needed to be sold for 30 pieces of silver. That silver needed to be thrown into the floor of the temple and used to buy a potter's field. That's part of the Messiah test. And guess who fulfilled it? Those that hated him. The very ones that are crucifying him, the very one that is betraying him is actually proving that he is God. Wow! You see, the devil had bloodlust. He had a grip on the Son of God. And he's like, kill him! And what does God say? Thank you. We've now accomplished my ends. You see, even what the enemy meant for evil, God turned it into the great redemption for you. Amazing. The conundrum. Uh, That's like the quagmire of the confusion. I just like the word, so I had to find a spot to put it in. (laughs) The confusion over means. Well, we have two different detours that we oftentimes go on. Forsaking means altogether. It's a very common one in the body of Christ, especially those of us that are growing in faith. We're like, I cannot use means because I, do not, I, I want to be pure in my faith and my trust of Jesus Christ. It's a noble movement of soul. However, it can oftentimes be distorted by the devil into that bigger concept of sovereignty or that perverted concept of sovereignty, which is, after all, God's too big for that humble stuff. He would not use glasses to help your eyesight. I mean, come on. When God Almighty, who created the human eye, gets to work, I think he can do better than glasses. It's a very interesting thought. And as a result, many of us stumble and miss the provision that God does have because of that. Forsaking means altogether. And then we also have something that is turning to the wrong means. Falling for the devil's counterfeit solution. You ever heard of that in the Bible where God gives a promise and he says, I'm going to accomplish this. And then the man turns to the wrong thing to accomplish it. You see, he turned to means, but he turned to the wrong means. So let's give the classic illustration of that in scripture. Abraham's blunder. The father of the faith. I mean, this is the classic picture of faith in the Bible. His name is Abraham. And yet, Abraham is very similar to us. The way he started is the way that many of us have started small in his faith. He grew to be big in his faith, but he was small and immature in his faith. And so the father of faith didn't get it right the first time. Do you remember his two sons? His first son was Ishmael. Ishmael is known as a wild donkey of a man. You see, Ishmael, the way that Ishmael came about, God gave Abraham a promise. He said that Eleazar, that Eleazar, his steward, which was not one of Abraham's sons, not from his body, would not be his heir, but that God would give Abraham an heir from his own body. He gave him a promise. And the descendants from Abraham would be as the sand of the seashore and the stars in the heaven. And Abraham believed. However, nothing was happening. And so Abraham found some means to accomplish his ends, or God's ends. But the means that he chose were not means of faith. They were means of self-effort to accomplish God's ends. Now, as I go through this, one of the key things I want to discuss is the difference between the means of self-effort, your own ability, your own wit and wisdom, and God's means. Because God will only work through his means. But in every situation, he has means. Every situation. 
But you could almost say it this way. In every situation, there's a counterfeit solution as well. And so for us, we must be dependent and in faith, turning to God in every circumstance. Okay, so we'll talk more about that. Ishmael is a wild donkey of a solution, not the right way of doing it. It's man's effort. And Isaac, well, that's the God-glorifying solution. God did it. No man can get credit for Isaac. God did it. It was God's provision. God's the one that accomplished his ends. So Ishmael and Isaac, those are your two uses of means. What is in a name? The name Isaac, for instance. You guys ever heard what Isaac means? Some of you probably know what it means. It's an extremely fascinating Hebrew word because it's an automatopoeia. You guys know what that means? That's a word that sounds like what it means. So it's actually like the sound of it actually is the same as its meaning, which is laughter. And so I guess in the Hebrew, they laughed like, ha! Because that's how the, that's his name. That's actually the guy's name, ha! So what's in a name? It's God's sense of humor, that's what. So the word to laugh is tzatzak, heck, heck. I don't know how they laughed, but that's a really funny one. But it's sort of like, for us, it's like, ha-ha, or ha-ha. Maybe that's sort of what it's similar to. And then his name, Isaac's name, is Yitzchak, Yitzchak. I can't say it very well. Which means, he laughs. It's a proper masculine name. He laughs. Isn't that an amazing statement? That's the name of the seed. The name of the God answer. Is basically... God laughs. Isn't that an amazing statement? That in the Bible, God's the one that gave this name, by the way, and you will call him, I laugh. (laughs) You will call him, ha! (laughs) And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Yitzchach, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. This is the promise. The promise is laughter. Isn't that an amazing statement? God's means to his end. This is part of God's plan. God is going to use a human genealogy to bring us the Messiah. It's going to come through this, and the name of that line is laughter. That is what will come of it. The other one is a wild donkey of a man, and most of us have endured that in our life of using the wrong sorts of means. We have done things in our, in our trials, in our tribulations, in our challenges, in our confusing moments. What have we done? Like Saul, we turned to the witch of Endor. Well, that's a means, but not the right one. Like Esau, we've sold our birthright for a bowl of red stew. Well, that's a means for your health, but not the right one. Like Abraham, we've slept with Hagar, and we ended up with a wild donkey of a solution one that follows us around through our life. God wants to change that. You see, God wants to establish a new pattern in your life. He wants to bear Isaacs in and through your life, things that reveal his glory. However, for that glory to be revealed, we also need to be sensitive to allow him to do it his way and not predefine how it's going to work, but say, God, you're God. You show me how Isaac will be born in this situation. The progression of the faith decision. So here's our progression. You have the promise. God makes his plan clear. Then there's always something known as the test of faith. 
You see, you know what God wants to do, but the circumstances in life are directly opposed to the clear plan of God. Oh, something is standing against it. Like God wants you to do something financially, but guess what? You have no money in your account. Well, that makes for a challenge, which is called the test of faith. Where do you stand now? Are you going to buckle under or are you going to believe? Are you going to stand firm in your faith? The third one is the turn of the soul. Where are you turning in that situation? When you hit the test, when the natural realm is not matching up. For instance, Abraham was given a promise that he would have a son, but guess what? The natural realm was not matching up. Sarah, are you pregnant? No. Sarah, are you pregnant? No. Sarah, are you pregnant? No. What are you going to do? It's called the turn of soul. Which way are you going to turn? Hagar is right here. Or are you going to turn to God? You see, Abraham turned to Hagar and he got a wild donkey of a man. However, then he learned to turn to God. And in faith, he took God at his word and believed that what God promised, he was also able to perform. So where does the soul turn amidst this test? The answer to that question is the difference between Ishmael and Isaac. So what leads to laughter? Wouldn't that be great? How many of you have ever dreamed of having a life that always leads to laughter? In every circumstance, there's laughter. Ha! At every turn, every circumstance, you can laugh. Wouldn't that be amazing? And that's my proposal. The means of grace are exactly that. They always lead to Isaac. They always lead to Jesus. Because Isaac is merely a placeholder for Jesus. They always lead. Every circumstance, every difficulty you will ever face leads to more of Jesus. More, more, more. Ever increasing amounts of it. More and more laughter. So what leads to laughter? First, a man must know God. You see, if you have a wrong conception of God, oftentimes you will make a wrong decision in the journey of faith. So we must know what is unchanging. Do you know that God is unchanging? He cannot change. He is who he is. That's what his name Jehovah even means. It means I am. I am that I am. He was that he is. He was that he was. He is that he is, and he will be what he will be. That's a hard thing to say. He is. That's the term. Yahweh means he is. That's what it actually means. I am... Aye is God talking, and that's his name. But Yahweh is us talking. He is. So God is unchanging. Now look at this next line. And we must know what is changing. What? Nothing's changing. God is unchanging, and he's in all things. Well, actually, God is unchanging. His nature is unchanging. But did you know that his method of working out his nature in our lives changes? He has a different way of doing it for every single one of us, but it's the same nature that he reveals. God's nature never changes. He is and he will always be. He cannot change, he cannot lie. He is inclined towards our benefit. His word is certain. He is love, he is faithful, he is without sin, he is holy, he is just. Those are facts. They will never alter. However, there's another part of life that changes. Uh, don't be disconcerted over that. That's part of how we need to work. When we know God, we know this is true. However, God's method for revealing his nature can change. But the whole while, he remains unchanging in his nature. Do you have that point? His nature isn't changing. However, the way in which he's going to reveal his nature to you, yeah, he's very creative and he has a great sense of humor. For instance, let's use an example. God is Jehovah Rapha, which means the Lord God who heals, or I am heals. 
The God who heals. The God is also the father of lights. This is his nature. Whenever a name is given in scripture, it's a revelation of his nature. A name is a nature. And so God heals. That's just a fact of who God is. He heals. Well, he's also the father of lights. The God who reveals himself and brings sight to those blind in darkness. He's the father of light. He's the one who gives understanding and knowledge. All right, so let's combine those two things together. And you see it in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, when he was here on this earth, healed. He was Jehovah Rapha, revealed. However, did you know that he also healed blind people and gave them sight? Uh Uh-huh. He's Jehovah Rapha, and he's the father of lights, revealed. But guess what? When he healed blind people, he did it differently every time. Isn't that a fascinating thought? You see, we get it down, and we're like, oh, this is how he works. He heals blind people, and he always does it this way. No, he heals blind people because he's Jehovah Rapha. He gives sight to the blind because he's the father of lights. However, the way he will do it is going to be uniquely creative to reveal another dimension of God's nature, and that is he is creative. The changeless nature and the ever-changing method. How God shows himself Jehovah Rapha and the father of lights. Let's go through it. The blind beggar Bartimaeus. Jesus simply says, your faith has saved you, and without any other action, Bartimaeus has given sight. Kaboom! And we're like, yeah, that's the way healing's supposed to be done. (laughs) So we have it in the bag. We have it all figured out. And this is how we're expecting him to do it from this point forward. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's another blind man over here. Hey, guys, come over and watch. The double dip. Jesus takes a blind man by the hand and leads him outside the village. Then Jesus spat upon the the man's eyes. It's like, what? What's he doing? That's not what you did with Bartimaeus. What's the deal with spit? I mean, how awkward is that? (laughs) Then he asks the man if he can see. The man can see, but not in full measure of clarity. And you could say, well, that's because you spat instead of just healing him. (laughs) So Jesus prays again, lays hands on the man's eyes, and the man's sight is restored to perfection. What was that? Don't complain. It's God. It's God at work. See, Jesus is revealing the nature of God and how God works. And God purposely is revealing in and through the stories of Scripture how he uses means, how he does what he does, so that you would begin to understand his ways. The mud pie. Another time, Jesus healed another by spitting on the ground, making mud, and pressing the mud to the man's eyes. Then before the man had his sight restored, he was asked by Jesus to to first go wash in the pool Siloam. After obeying Jesus, this man's sight was healed. Well, how bizarre and unnecessary is all that bonus stuff to do? Well, I don't like that. I want him just to go kaboom and heal him. However, are we willing to allow God to be God? Are we willing to allow Jesus to be Jesus? He still heals. He still is fulfilling his name. He's still showing that he's the father of lights. But how he does it is uniquely creative. And that's part of what we need to begin to understand is that God is God. And we are not him. The nature and the method. The nature. The question is, who will do it? The answer is, Jesus will. You see, Jesus' nature is constant. And you know he will do it. However, the method. The question is, how will it be done? The answer is, ask for wisdom and God will certainly show you. In every situation, every circumstance you come into, do not be passive, but I want you to be active, and I want you to seek God's wisdom 
for how he has provided the means of grace in this circumstance. Don't lean on a past success, a past way that he healed blind Bartimaeus and say, well, that's how he always does it. No, in this circumstance, you turn afresh to the living God dependent and you say, could you give me wisdom and eyes to see in this circumstance? If you need to spit in some dirt and rub it on my eyes, God, you do it. Whatever you want to do, give me sight to understand in this circumstance how you have provided, how you want me to move forward. A necessary tool for understanding. So now we're going to begin to decide some things together. We talked about sovereignty. We began to acquaint you with the fact that God uses humble means to accomplish his big ends. Here's a key word, provision. Now, I broke it in half just so that you could see it. We have a whole message for the students uh, that Philip's going to give this semester called Provision for the Impossible. It's an incredible enunciation on the concept of provision. But provision is the great language of God's sovereignty unto his people. How do you see God's sovereignty? In every single circumstance. God has already seen that circumstance and made provision for it. And that's how you see that he is in control. This is the language that he reveals his position to us. He provides. He is providence. He is sovereign. So even when the enemy brings against us, sticks us in prison, attempts to do the worst to us, God already has seen that situation and has made provision for us. And through that circumstance, the glory of God will be revealed. God always trumps. God always has the card in his hand to go, well, I guess I win that hand too. God always wins. God always sees ahead. He knows what is needed. It's called provision. See, provision, pro meaning ahead, Vision, obviously, meaning sight. God has sight ahead of time. He is called the provider. He is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He is El Rai, the God who sees. Foresight. Timely care, particularly active foresight, or foresight accompanied with the procurement of what is necessary for future use or with suitable preparation. Measures taken beforehand, either for security, defense, or attack, or for the supply of wants, the act of providing or making previous preparation. He is Jehovah Jireh. That, that name comes out for God in uh, Genesis 22 when, when a- and Abraham, yes, I need to get my characters correct here. Abraham is called to Mount Moriah to offer up Isaac. And Abraham obeys, but God has seen fit to make provision. And what does Abraham find in the bush? He finds a ram caught in the thicket. God has already supplied the means for the sacrifice. He knew about it ahead of time. Can you imagine him even directing the course of that little ram? Come here, little ram. The little ram's sniffing around and gets caught on a branch, can't seem to get out, and God goes, perfect. All right, now, where were we over here? You see, God is always superseding all the other circumstances around you, and he knows where the ram is. He knows what you're going to need, and he has it caught in the thicket at the perfect time. He's God. You need to know that. He is Jehovah Jireh, which means he provides. You see, Jehovah means he is. So you could say it this way. He is provider. He is. This is who he is. It's his nature. He can't help but being it for all eternity. He only knows how to be God. 
and he provides. I don't care what your circumstances share with you right now. I don't care how bleak it may look. He's provided for that circumstance. You must believe it. And that's where faith is. Faith is in every circumstance. He owns the situation. He knew about it beforehand. He's sovereign. He is in control. Therefore, there is a ram in the thicket somewhere. What is his means in this circumstance? It's called the means of grace. He has means of grace for you. He will always be this. This is his nature. He is Jehovah Jireh, the God of provision. Our faith must always reside in his nature. I love this quote by Ian Bounds. Jacob wrestled not as much with a promise as with a promiser. What do you grab a hold of? You grab a hold of a person, not just a promise. You don't grab a hold of the way that he healed blind Bartimaeus. You grab a hold of Jehovah Rapha. You grab a hold of the Father of Lights, and you say, I trust you. You see, he may heal differently, but he will heal. He may provide differently, but he will provide. Your job is to believe him. How he will do it is part of his unique way to make you laugh. You see, whenever any of you have ever seen the provision of God, what's the response that you should have? Ha! It really is laughter. You sit there dumbfounded and go, wow. So we need to be laughing more, and we will laugh more when we allow God to be God. Three test cases. So the life fest. That's just one of our test cases that we brought up. The Mayflower screw, which Walter Willis brought up for me this week, which is the concept of when the, uh, the, Puri- no, I'm sorry, the pilgrims were on their way from England over to the New World, their mast broke, snapped. And that's a pretty bad thing for a ship going across the ocean. And yet they knew that they were called. They didn't have a place to return to. However, everything in the situation, the circumstance, bid them to turn around and to give way to fear and to turn around with a tail between their legs and go back to the nation that had persecuted them. And yet the pilgrims believed that God had a means of grace in the circumstance. They believed in providence. And so they looked at a, uh, they'd look at a stapped mast and all the crew, which was non-believers that were mocking these pilgrims, said, we have to turn around. And the pilgrim said, God has a way. God has provision for us. And sure enough, in the belly of the ship, one of the pilgrims, I don't know if it was Bradford's uh, printing press, but they've had this huge screw in it. I don't know how big it was, but it was this massive screw that just happened to be in a printing press, and it was just big enough to actually refit the mast, and they made it all the way to the new world thanks to a screw. Most of us would say, shouldn't God just go and recreate the mast? Or did he have it in mind ahead of time to say, okay, do we have the screw on board? Good. You see, he was testing. He was training. And those pilgrims needed to have faith for what they were headed into. You need to have a greater faith for what you're headed into. And so as a result, he stowed away a big screw in the hull of your ship. And at the perfect time, he's going to say, look, it's been there all, all the while. Use it. And when you do, you're going to laugh and say, he had it there all the time. God provides. Three, the Red Sea. Moses is backed up to the Red Sea. All the nation of Israel, we're in a bad situation. Now, if you're an Israelite and God has just performed 10 amazing miracles, the death angel has just passed over the people of Israel and all of Israel is safe. 
They have plundered the Egyptians. They're leaving. Pharaoh's like, get out of here. Wouldn't you be a man or a woman of faith? Instead, when they get to that day, they're being tested. And it looks as if God has just sort of dropped back and said, oh, yeah, forgot about you guys. You see, Pharaoh's upset. And Pharaoh's coming after the people of Israel. He's like, I want my slaves back. Well, the people of Israel have no weapons. They have nothing. They could swing their goats as their defense. They have women and children around them, and they're backed up to a Red Sea. On either side, they have mountains. They have no way of escape. Oh, no. Oh, no! The key line in this that Josephus brings out is that God, Moses says that God possesses this situation. He possesses those mountains. He possesses this sea. He possesses this land we're standing on. He possesses all of us. It would be no better than madness to despair in the providence of God now. That's what Moses says. He's like, hey, hey guys, they're picking up rocks to stone Moses. How dare you bring us out into the wilderness only to kill us here? And he says it would be no better than madness to despair now. Watch what God will do. Now, uh, what's God going to do? I mean, we've got mountains on these sides. We have a Red Sea on this side. And we have an angry mob of Egyptians, the strongest military force in the world, coming against us. And we have no weapons. Watch. Watch the provision of God. You know that God had it in mind before they arrived there, what he was going to do? You know that when you arrive at the Red Sea, God has it in mind ahead of time what he's going to do? The question is, are you going to pick up stones and throw them at the word of God and declare that its promises are not true? Or are you going to look to the word of God and to that rod known as Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the rod. What did Moses strike against the Red Sea? Jesus. And what came blowing in the east wind, the Holy Spirit? You see, you have all you need. It's already been provided for you 2,000 years ago. Everything you will need for every single circumstance has been made available even before you arrived there. So how are you going to handle the Red Sea? He possesses every situation. So your low bank account, he possesses it. Uh, your bad health, he possesses that body of yours. Your circumstances that look untenable, that look impossible... He possesses those circumstances. Do you believe that? That's the key. You see, if you use means knowing that he possesses a situation, should the Israelites walk across on dry land or should they say, oh, no, we have to fly out of here. Unless we fly out of here, it's not big enough for God. He can't just use an east wind. Come on, that's not big enough for God. He chooses to blow an east wind and part that Red Sea, you start walking. In other words, his means of provision is what you walk in by faith. You have faith in him, not the specific provision. Because next time you come to the Red Sea, you know what he might do? He might flatten the mountains. So don't just be staring at the Red Sea going, it has to be the Red Sea. He might fly out of there next time. I've had some other ideas too of how he could just obliterate the Egyptian army. Hailstones come down. He's done that at other times. Why did he do that now? Instead, he chooses the way. Your job is to believe that he has the way in mind ahead of time. He knows it. In every circumstance, he will provide. The question is, how will he do it this time? The anatomy of the faith decision. We'll call this the six building blocks of laughter. You guys need a little laughter in your life. I'm going to give you the building blocks for it. 
The first one, the test. Houston, we have a problem. So you guys have to know Apollo 13 and the history of NASA to appreciate that one. But something went berserko on the Apollo 13 ship and everything was going dark. Houston, we have a problem. Well, that's you. That's me. How many times do we yell that into our microphone of our life up to God? Oh, God, we have a problem. <laughs> However, he knows about that situation even before it happened. It's an amazing thought to know that God knows about that letter that's in the mail to you before it arrives and you have your little panic attack. He knew it was there. Was he caught off guard when you opened? He's like looking over your shoulder. Going, what is that? And then you start reading. He's like, oh, no. He turns white. He's like, oh, no. God knows. He sees. And he has provided. The question is, will you turn to him first? Turn to him. Even though your knees are beginning to knock, you turn and say, God, how will you do it this time? You will do it. I know you have a means. You will do it. And then you humble yourself to seek his wisdom for his means in that circumstance. Houston, we have a problem. Then the faith, the immediate turn unto God with a face calm. Your face has to be calm. I know some of you, you have the, it's white as a sheet, your knees are knocking, you're leaning on the counter. Turn calmly because that's the symbol of faith. It's okay if your knees knock the first few times. You just want to ask God to sturdy you up a bit. Come on. Buck up, you're a Christian. The God of the universe owns this situation. Learn to rejoice ahead of time. So the immediate turn into God with a face calm with assurance. God, I, I know you possess this situation. Doesn't that sound nice? Yeah, so you're like, dreaming. That's Christianity. And God will grow you to that. He will teach you how to turn in your soul in every circumstance. And here's a key point, the wisdom. The consequent request unto God. So if you turn unto God, what do you do? God, I need wisdom. What to do with this circumstance? What to do with this letter? What to do with the fact that they just denied my debit card? <laughs> what do you do? You turn with a calm assurance unto God and say, God, give me the wisdom. Because I know you know this circumstance. You knew it before I even arrived here. You knew that when I used this debit card, it would be declined. You could have told me before I was humiliated in front of the... All right, well, that's a different point. But God, you have this situation in the hollow of your hand. I ask that you would give me wisdom, which means the mind of God and the way out. He's going to show you the path, the way. He's going to light it for you, and you will know where to go. So the consequent request unto God with a heart filled with joy and confidence, God, I know you will deliver me in this situation. Please show me your means of deliverance. May I have eyes to see how you have labored aforehand for my salvation in this circumstance. You know that he has labored aforehand. He has labored even before you arrived there for your salvation in this circumstance. Isn't that an amazing thought that God ever lives to make intercession for you? He ever lives to labor on your behalf. He has means of grace. The knowledge. It's the consequent understanding. You see... The pilgrims turn unto God and they say, God, we have a broken mast, but we sense that you're calling us to a new world. We need your mind on this matter. And so what does he show them? He shows them wisdom to go look amongst the stuff that they already have, and then he gives them knowledge, very specific understanding of the solution that God has given, the means for that circumstance, a screw. So now they don't just have the wisdom of what to do, now they have the knowledge of how to do it. So where do we get the wisdom and the knowledge? Where do you turn? You have to turn to Jesus. What's your position? 
If you're in Christ, let me give you a little piece of information. In whom? In Jesus. Are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything you need for laughter is hidden in Jesus Christ. Everything. So your job is to turn unto Jesus and say, in you, I have access to all wisdom and all knowledge. So I know I have it. I know I have wisdom and I have knowledge for this circumstance. Now I just need you to give it to me. You see, you have access to everything you will need because look what follows the knowledge. After you get the screw in place and the mast is back in position, the thanksgiving. Oh, that fits with the pilgrims, doesn't it? It's a thanksgiving service. The reasonable act of service unto the God who is our provider. When you see his provision and you laugh, you are thanking our God for being God. He is who he says he is. He has proven it once again to your soul. Thanksgiving. And then what follows that? Well, now you're stronger than you've ever been. What happens the next time that the mast breaks? What do you do? Ah, I've been here before. God loves to come up with solutions for this. So God, what do you have in store this time? The increase of strength. Houston, I'm ready for another problem, but could you make it a little bigger next time? And you're thinking, I'm not about to say that. I love this quote of C.T. Studd. Difficulties, dangers, disease, death, or divisions don't deter any but chocolate soldiers. Chocolate soldiers are ones that melt under heat. From executing God's will. When someone says there is a lion in the way, the real Christian promptly replies, well, that's hardly enough inducement for me. I want a bear or two besides to make it worth my while to go. Well, but there's a lion. Your mast might break. Hey, I want a couple holes in my boat for God to give provision for. Not just a broken mast. Been there. Done that. You see, God is growing you up to a great strength where you are not deterred by the fact that the Egyptian army is running on you with hundreds of thousands in military position and swords drawn. You are not deterred that there's a mountain on this side and a mountain on this side. You're not deterred that there's a Red Sea behind you. Why? God possesses this circumstance and he is Jehovah Jireh. Watch what my God will do. The pre-rejoicing. So I have a proposal to make. If you already know that you have all the wisdom and knowledge that you're going to need for every circumstance, and that he is Jehovah Jireh, he is the God who sees, and he will prove faithful to your life, he will do it. There's already a ram caught in the thicket. If you know that ahead of time, I just have a, a little thought. Why don't we do the Thanksgiving now? instead of waiting till when it finally happens. You see, this is actually God's model, not mine. He says, well, you know what? Why don't you just rejoice? Or rejoice, but I'm in prison. No, rejoice. I possess this circumstance. Watch what I will do. And so when you're put in prison, what do you do? You sing songs. When you're falsely accused, what do you do? You leap for joy. Well, how could you do that? Because you already know the ends. You already know that God has made provision. You already know that he wins. You already know that he is God. Don't you? So if you do, the rejoicing is now and all throughout the process. When you get the, 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 the letter in the mail that would make your knees knock, instead you look at it and you go, what was that song I was going to sing next time I got this? Oh, yeah. And then you whip into song, you do a little dance. <laughs> Why? Well, God owns this situation. Watch what he will do. You see, as God grows us up in faith, that becomes practical and not just ideal. We all know that as I'm talking, it's sort of like, well, that would be nice. No, I'm saying you have all you need in Christ to do that. 
self, for he has already done it. It's accomplished. Every challenge is Christmas morning. Oh, what's under the tree? You already know it's done because he's God. And this is just how he works. The building blocks of holy laughter. So I have a little puzzle for you. I tried to put this into a puzzle, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. But here's our first one, the test. And then you layer on top of the test, the faith. And you layer on top of the faith, the wisdom. You layer on top of the wisdom, the knowledge. You layer on top of the knowledge, the rejoicing. And then the increase. And you have laughter. This is the picture that my mom gave to me when I was five years old. I signed it on the back, believed in Jesus, and I put the date. And it was that picture, Jesus laughing. And so this is somewhat of a deep and personal message for me because I've wrestled with this for many years of my life to understand how to face obstacle, how to face difficulty the way God has assigned me to face it as opposed to being defeated by it. If he's laughing, I want to be laughing. I mean, the very word itself for the means of God to carry on the lineage of the Messiah is he laughs. What a statement. The test of faith, the three key failures of faith. Doubt. When that testing comes, you know the promise, you know what God is wanting to do, but what did you do? You doubted. You turned away from God as in, in his nature. You doubted his ability to perform. Will you turn from the clear word, from the clear promise? God said, Sarah will have a son. Not Hagar. He said, Sarah will have a son. Did you doubt and turn away from the clear promise and turn to Hagar? He didn't promise anything out of Hagar. He promised it out of Sarah. Fear. Will you allow fear to drive your actions? You see, one of the number one ways that you get off course is you allow fear to dictate your actions. And as a result, you will give rise to an Ishmael. Turn the ship around. Go home, pilgrims. The mast is broken. How do you expect to make it across the great big Atlantic? There is a solution. Will you turn to fear or will you turn to faith? Superstition, we could call it all sorts of things. Dogmatism, ignorance. Will you limit God to your understanding, allowing him to save you in only the way you can comprehend? Imagine that the pilgrims surround the mast and they go, God can raise up this mast. Is it true? Yes. But they don't turn to God for wisdom. Instead, in dogmatism or superstition or ignorance, they stare at the mast and say, God will raise this mast up. It sounds good and it sounds noble, but the key is that we're in agreement with God's way in every circumstance. That's the key. So our job is not to diminish God and say he can't raise up the mass. No, he could do that. But he could also have a screw in the printer that he could fix it with. Are we willing to allow God to define that? We know he is provided. However, how he will do it we must seek him with dependence in each circumstance. I don't need a life vest, says Hudson Taylor. God wouldn't save me with something as pedestrian as that. He's God. Or may he. May he provide you with a life vest. And would you accept it and put it around your shoulders? Letting God answer God's way. If he chooses to use spittle and dirt, that's his business. The mysterious and the mechanical. When I was wrestling with this, this is probably 10, 12 years ago, I remember praying to God saying, God, how does this work? How am I supposed to let 
you intervene in my life in miraculous ways and yet also deal with the mechanical things like eating, getting dressed in the morning. Do, do I let you do all of these things or do I participate? How does this work? So Oswald Chambers, that very day I came across a quote from Oswald Chambers called The Mysterious and the Mechanical. It was funny, I was doing a search on this yesterday on Google, the Oswald Chambers, The Mysterious and the Mechanical, and I had two quotes from me that came up and then I was clicking on it, I was like, wait, that's me talking. Uh, so obviously I've said something about this in the past. Oswald Chambers, we have to recognize that we are one half mysterious and one half mechanical. To live in either domain and ignore the other is to be a fool or a fanatic. To believe in the mysterious work of God's grace but then ignore the fact that we have to work it out in our mechanical lives produces spiritual humbugs, those who make a divorce between the mysterious life and the practical life. If God wanted to get me up out of bed, he'd get me up out of bed. If God wanted me to be dressed, I'd be dressed. If God wanted me to eat a banana today, I'd eat a banana. Or are you supposed to agree with God when he says, rise, rise. You use this body that you have authority over. And in response to that work of grace that is speaking to you, you are obedient. You get up and stick your feet on the floor. You walk into the closet and pick out clothing. You walk into the kitchen and you pick, put your hand on a banana and peel it. Stick it in your mouth and you choose to chew it. At the same time, you belong to God. And the life that you are living spiritually is utterly impossible to pull off without that breath of life in you. For you are called to love in every circumstance. You are called to turn in faith in every circumstance and you cannot do that. When that letter arrives in the mail and your knees are knocking, if you do not have the grace of God for that circumstance, you will fail and you will create an Ishmael. You will sell the birthright that God has given you for a bowl of red stew. You need something beyond you. You need the mysterious dimension of God to invade your being and enable you to carry out the mechanical dimensions. You are half mysterious and half mechanical. But to forsake the fact that you're mechanical and just make life all mysterious turns you into an absolute idiot. To make it sound like it's all mechanical and you don't need God to do anything turns you into a legalist. You need the empowerment of God to be able to live out this life in that true balance. So what about means? Remember Jehovah Jireh. I am provides. That's one way that you could translate Jehovah Jireh. I am provides. Or he will provide. That would be equally true because I am means he was, he is, and he is to come. It's the fact that he's always been here and he always will be here. So we could put it in the past tense. He has provided, we could say. It'd be still accurate. But it's more than that. He has provided, he will provide, and he always will provide. He is your provider. That will never change. Your confidence rests in that fact. I am provides or he will provide or he has provided. The making of the temple in the Old Testament, you know what God told Moses? He said, have the people give unto God their silver, their gold, their fine linens, their jewels. What was he going to do with it? He's going to build the tabernacle. Why doesn't God just go and build the tabernacle? Instead, he has the people give up their gold and their silver and their fine jewels. Where did they get those from? They got those from the people of Egypt. 
God literally plundered from Egypt. He plundered from the world to build the story of his redemption. How about Jericho? Remember Jericho, that bad city? The walled city, they marched around seven times. And then the final day, they marched around seven times and blew the trumpet and it <clears throat> crumbled to the ground. God said, don't touch any of the jewels, any of the gold, the silver, anything in it that belongs to me. God wanted it. Why does God want anything from these lives? You know what he did with it? He built the temple. What did he use to build his tabernacle and his temple? Well, we would say, God wouldn't touch that. God says, I made it. You see, God made this world, and he says, it is good. It is very good. The fact that the devil has tried to claim it as his doesn't mean it is his. God has created means. Did you know that there is fuel sources and there is precious metals in the earth that God put there in the very beginning? And he knew that you would find them. You see, he has supplied in the earth. He saw the, before the anvil of omnipotence began. He saw what was needed. And he knew what you would need. And he created this world. And he put a rib inside of Adam. And he says, oh, you know what? It's not good that man is alone. So now it's time for me to excavate the rib. He planted it inside his creation. He says, this is good. This is very good. And then out of it, he drew a solution. And so as God is working in your life, just know that that is how he has worked throughout the ages. And it is okay that he works that way. It is his nature. He has created something that is good, and he wants us to learn to walk in that, but not creating Ishmael's, but creating Isaac's. Holy Father, I pray that you would enable us to see this balance, and that we would know how to navigate these issues in our life, and that more importantly than the specifics right now, that we would see the big, and that we would see that you are the God who provides and in every circumstance we face, you are the provider. So, Lord, we declare ahead of time that you have made a way. In each of our circumstances that we are facing right now, I pray, Lord, that you would put your finger on each one of them and you would freshly remind us that you are our provider and that we would turn to you instead of to Ishmael, that we would turn to you to see an Isaac born and that laughter would once again, again reign in the church of Jesus Christ. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.